0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 333rd episode, lucky number 333. Yeah. We have a bunch of news, including a new titanosaur find and tyrannosaur cannibalism. Uh-oh. Yeah, very, very different things. We also have dinosaur of the day, Turiasaurus, and a fun fact that I know nothing about because Sabrina's doing it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> surprise fun fact
0: i hope it's nice and dinosaur-y <laughs> although mine aren't always so i shouldn't be so judgy
1: dinosaurs are a part of it
0: okay good but before we get into all of that we want to thank some of our patrons and we have had a bunch of new patrons
1: oh yeah it's amazing thank you yes gives us the warm and fuzzy feelings
0: it really does and we want to thank some of our patrons we're not thanking any new patrons this week because i'm working out which shout out names to give some of the new patrons but next week i'm sure there will be some new shout outs but for this week we have Neil Ovenator, or maybe Nilo venator depending on where you're from also bill jago trent carbajal kessler Gordonodon, and jackie cephalosaurus robert gemetrodon argentrinosaurus kyle and rohan nice
1: so yes, again, thank you so much for all of your support. It not only does it make us feel good, it allows us to keep this podcast going.
0: Yep. Especially now that we're both working on it full time.
1: And if you want to join our growing dinosaur enthusiast community, then go to our page patreon.com/i know dino.
0: And before we get into the news, we also have a quick couple follow-up items from earlier episodes. I always like to update things when I learn more. So, I'm probably going to try to work this in more because a lot of times people, when we say something on the show like, oh, I wonder if this ever happens, people will send us a message like, yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) So we should probably start following up more. From episode 331 in particular, we talked about how Overraptor was sitting on a nest of an Overraptor, not all Overraptors, but one of them was sitting on a nest of what looked like about 20 to 24 eggs. And we said, wow, that's a lot of eggs. Mm-hmm. If it's laying, even if it's doing two a time, that's almost two weeks worth of eggs. And Sabrina had asked like, well, could it have been multiple oviraptors or I should say oviraptorosaurs because we don't know if it was specifically oviraptor or some other oviraptorosaur. But anyway, whether it could have been multiple individuals laying these eggs in one nest and they were sort of sharing that one physical nest and not just a nesting zone with multiple nests. And we were like, I don't know. And then multiple people reached out to us and said, yes, it could be. And among the feedback we got was that the acorn woodpecker, long-tailed tits, which are a type of bird, and chickens have all been observed with multiple parents sharing a single nest. That's really cool. Yeah. The first we heard from a few people about chickens, and that's Really interesting and obviously one of the most likely thing for a human to observe because we're, you know, we have lots of chickens all over the place. But when it happens in the wild, somehow it feels more genuine. (laughs) (laughs) Like if you don't force hundreds of them into the same space, they're just doing something weird because they're all together. You could see how, you know, they don't have a lot of space to nest and maybe they're doing it together. But out in the wild, birds do this too. In fact, one listener shared a great quote from Sloan in the 1990s, quote, Plural cooperative breeders, flocks of 10 to 40 individuals can have many simultaneous nests, each attended by two to six individuals. And that was referring to those acorn woodpeckers, I think. That's just such, I don't even know how to wrap my head around that, that there are up to 40 individuals sharing multiple nests at the same time all over the place.
1: Well, another one of our listeners told us that they have guinea fowl, about 20 of them that sometimes lay in the same nest, and they've had 40 eggs in there at the same time. Oh, man. And sometimes two of them brood and sit on the nest, but usually it's just one looking after all the eggs.
0: Yeah, it's so crazy. It's so complicated. So even the people who have observed these nests, it's like we don't know exactly what they're about, like why they're doing it exactly. What we think is happening is that some of the extra birds are there to try to take over the nest. Sometimes it looks like basically they had some eggs that didn't get laid or didn't make it or whatever and they're just trying to like steal someone else's nest. Sometimes they try to sneak their own eggs into the nest and then other ones just seem to sort of stick around the community for the company and warmth and they call those non-breeding helpers, which I think is great. <laughs> so, yeah, that's fascinating. And it I makes sense. There's strength in numbers. You can have multiple parents then protecting a nest, keeping it warm, if there's something that goes wrong with your nest, but you don't have any other plans for the season, you were planning on raising your own nest, maybe you just stick around some other nest.
1: Just shows the complexity of birds.
0: Yes. And so with dinosaurs, sure, there's a there's a decent chance that Oviraptorosaur was sitting on a nest with other parents.
1: It was babysitting, yeah.
0: That's the kind of thing that would be really, really hard to tell from paleontology, mm-hmm. because how are you going to know there's multiple parents? Oh, ha-
1: unless they all happen to die together in just the right spot and we find them articulated.
0: Yeah, so maybe if there's like some characteristic way that they organize like if we knew from these woodpeckers or chickens or something that when they're grouped around a nest in a certain position <laughs> that means that they're cohabitating in a nest that yeah, yeah, I don't know. But that'd
1: be really hard to tell cuz we'd have to know okay, this is the Position they'd have to be in, yes, and we don't know that.
0: It's really we don't hard to imagine what that position would be, yeah. Without seeing another dinosaur lay the egg there, mm-hmm. or maybe I guess. We could maybe see it if it was something like a cuckoo bird, where it was a different species, and you could see that there were different embryos in the same one, sort of like there were those dromaeosaur mm-hmm. skulls. But then even then, we were saying like, well, did they get the egg somewhere else and bring it back? Right. Or were they intending to raise it unwittingly? Or I mean, what was you happening? could
1: hypothesize if you found these dinosaurs in a similar position to extant birds that we know do this. But then again, it's just like, well, it looks like that. Yeah. So we think that, but you will never know for sure.
0: Yeah. Sure. Really, the only way to do it is like to do a DNA test, like Mm -hmm. a paternity test on them with multiple individuals. But since the DNA doesn't preserve, that's probably not going to happen either. So thanks, everybody, for the feedback on that, because that was really interesting.
1: Yeah. We also got some feedback from last episode, episode 332. We talked about the Daring to Dig Women in American Paleontology exhibit. It's at the Museum of Earth, and they have an online version of this in case you can't make it all the way to Ithaca, New York. And we were talking about the exhibit has women working in paleontology from the 1600s to modern day. And at the time we were thinking, oh, wait, what? 1600s. Who was Who was doing stuff <laughs> in the 1600s? We could only yeah. think of the, the 1800s. And we got some listener feedback, really great about, and it, this is on the website, which I had forgotten. I was going to look up. So it was a good reminder. Thank you about the Lister sisters. They were the daughters of Martin Lister, who was a British naturalist and physician. And it says that they're British naturalists and scientific illustrators and engravers. And they worked on, or they made over a thousand copper engravings of specimens for one of his projects. Oh, wow. They have these really accurate scientific illustrations and engravings. And if you look at some of the pictures on the site, it's really detailed. It's impressive.
0: All the ones I saw on there were shelled creatures
1: right they've got a picture of a nautilus it's so cool it's so detailed though
0: yeah yeah they're very beautiful and really like you can see that they just had tons of skill with their i don't know if it's called penmanship but their line work where things look like perfectly parallel and just yeah it's amazingly done and that. I didn't realize that they were engravings it makes sense because it was for a book mm-hmm. and that was how they printed back then was you had to engrave it so and that you could no photography it
1: so you wanted as realistic as possible and so apparently what's not on the site uh the list one of our listeners also told us is there martin lister was one of the first to study fossilized fish and mollusks so that's mm. probably why you see mostly those kinds of illustrations
0: so we guessed right we thought maybe it was fish <laughs> and it was yeah but it's a really cool story. And there were people even in the 18, early 1800s quoted saying like, people need to give these sisters credit because they were amazing naturalists in their own right. They weren't just really in their dad's shadow, especially with the the art side of things.
1: One quick thing, we had a discussion on our discord about that was like, whether or not you actually call these women paleontologists, because in the 1600s extinction wasn't yet a theory.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: So uh, on the website, it does call them naturalists, which I think was a, the most common term up until maybe paleontology became a term.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like the retronym of referring to them as paleontologists should be okay because they were studying fossils. Even if they didn't know they were fossils, they were describing them and drawing them like... Would they be upset about that? I guess maybe.
1: Maybe. I could see an argument for both ways. Yeah. So, yeah, I think naturalists make the most sense.
0: But it seems wrong to say, like, if you are making a list of female paleontologists to exclude them because the word paleontologist wasn't invented yet.
1: Oh, well, they're not excluded. Yeah. They're still, they had a lot of value to bring and they were doing it in the 1600s, which was amazing, but... I mean, the, the website, the exhibit is called Women in Paleontology, but when you dig into these stories, sometimes they say, oh, these naturalists. Gotcha. The spirit is there.
0: It's now that we're done with our follow-ups. For this week. That's true. <laughs> we, we likely will have more in the near future, but we're, we'll move on to the n- new news, as I like to call it.
1: New news about those old things.
0: <laughs> i suppose the old new news i don't know so the first one is a titanosaur
1: yes the best news yeah well sauropods
0: i think it's the best news that i have this week oh, okay i find it slightly more interesting than carnivorous tyrannosaurs
1: and cannibalistic ones
0: yeah oh yeah <laughs> they're all carnivorous <laughs> cannibalistic is the thing that makes it interesting yeah so this new titanosaur it's not like a new titanosaur in that there's a new species named, but I still want to put it in that place in our episode because I appreciate the fact that they found a very significant titanosaur and many other people may have been tempted to name this as a new species and genus, but they resisted the urge. It's still a very important find though, so I think it should still be talked about. So this one was written by Alejandro Otero and others and published in Cretaceous Research. And unfortunately, Cretaceous Research is not open access, but there was a really good write-up on paleonerdish.wordpress.com.
1: Oh, yes, that's a good site.
0: I hadn't, I don't remember seeing it before.
1: It comes up from time to time in my alerts.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah, they're a Argentinian paleontologist, so this is an Argentinian find, which is why they covered it. And yeah, it was really good. They had nice pictures to go with it and everything. So that's the link that I'm going to post in the show notes, rather than... The actual article. I rarely do that, but I really like this write-up, so I'm going to do it. The new article, like I said, is a titanosaur from Argentina. It did not get a new name, but it is still awesome. It does sort of have a name, though, because like every fossil, it has an official specimen number, and this one is MOZ-PV1221. All right. So there you go. There's... <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't see any nickname. I was kind of hoping on the blog there might be a nickname that I could use. I was thinking about calling it like because Mozzie, <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to resist the urge. So this sauropod was found in the Neuquén province of Argentina, specifically Patagonia.
1: That's where our, uh, most of the giant dinosaurs have been found.
0: Yes, just like even throughout the whole world, I think most of our are in Patagonia. <laughs> and I think I've been pronouncing Neuquén wrong. It's spelled N-E-U-Q-U-E-N. With
1: an accent over the E.
0: Yeah, but I found a pronunciation guide that said New Ken is how you say it. So that's how I'm going to go. It's actually the largest city in New Ken province as well. So it's a province and a city. Hmm. And New Ken is also the largest city in Patagonia. <laughs> All right. <laughs> With about a quarter million people inside the city limits And a place I'd love to visit. I'm kind of jonesing for a road trip. So I was, I looked up where this was and I was like, ooh, we could drive there from Buenos Aires. It's only about 14 hours Southwest. Maybe we could make it in a day or maybe we could stop somewhere along. And then I was like, I'm getting-
1: I do want to go to Patagonia.
0: Yes. And also not just New Ken, but there's Rio Negro, Chubut and Santa Cruz all look like great provinces worth visiting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went down a mini Patagonia rabbit hole. All of Patagonia has about 2 million people, which is only 4% of Argentina's population, despite Patagonia being almost half of Argentina's total area. Wow. And to put that in perspective, Patagonia is almost twice as big as Alberta, Canada, but has about half of the population.
1: Wow. And Alberta is already <laughs> considered to be not that densely populated.
0: Yeah. So this is like a quarter, as dense as that and it gets it's like really disproportionate too because like new ken and like the northern part of patagonia has like a decent number of people and then as you get farther south it's less and less it's basically like upside down alberta that way Hmm. plus it also gets colder as you get towards the oh right and
1: southern hemisphere
0: yeah so i was thinking of it like alberta and then i realized oh it's actually bigger and less dense so (laughs) it's even more alberta-y than alberta
1: (laughs) maybe alberta is more patagonian
0: that's true yeah it could be so anyway, back to this discovery. It was actually found in 2012, but being a massive titanosaur, it takes a little while to get it all out, get it prepared, get it described and all that. Mm-hmm. There's these great pictures, basically the whole team working on it, you know, like half a dozen to a dozen people. Oh, do they have
1: those pictures of people laying next to one of the bones and then the bone is longer than them?
0: Well, you need like multiple people because it's most of it is a 16 vertebrae series.
1: Oh, the neck. So
0: it's really, it's like basically most of the neck of this really <laughs> large titanosaur in situ.
1: Do they know if they got all the vertebrae in the neck?
0: They didn't get a, So they got C3 to C18, they think. Okay. So C1 is barely even a bone right at the base of the head. Mm -hmm. And then C18 is like close to the shoulders, but not quite all the way there. So they're missing the ends of it. So
1: it's just a couple though. like they're pretty sure they know, like you could guess how long the neck would be.
0: Yeah, they've got a pretty, I mean, the amount of neck, it looked like quite a few meters of neck Mm -hmm. (laughs) that they had in the dig site. And it's like in that position. So they're all kind of like perched around it. It looks really cool. I, I love the look of this find. And I should also mention it's in the Candelaros formation, maybe Candelaros, which is 98 plus or minus a million years ago. So it's like right at that middle point of the Cretaceous, basically.
1: Yeah, that's when they had some giant dinosaurs.
0: There, yeah, there were some serious dinosaurs. But in addition to that neck, that wasn't all that they found. They also found several tail vertebrae, some pieces of the hips and a few other bones, which was enough to tell us a titanosaur, but they couldn't tell if it was a specific species
1: because mm, titanosaurs have a lot of common features
0: yeah they don't think that it was andesaurus or andesaurus which is the only other titanosaur known from that specific formation doesn't look that much like it but they can't really be sure because like i said they only found like the neck vertebrae mm-hmm. and that's not really the best i think the back vertebrae and like more of the hips and then the, the limbs are usually what you go with
1: oh but We've got a dinosaur of the day coming up where it was a sauropod basically named from its neck vertebrae.
0: Exactly. So that's what I was saying, like lesser paleontologists. Maybe I shouldn't I, well, say no, lesser. No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> but more people more tempted to name a new dinosaur may have named this a new genus.
1: I, I will say, though, that if you know enough details and you're able to make these comparisons and you see enough differences, I could see why you would name a new dinosaur based yes. on
0: So yeah, I think you're right. So maybe those were named earlier, and now at this point they look at the neck vertebrae and there isn't anything unique about it. They can see similarities to multiple species, and so it's, yeah, there's too much overlap to name something new. But it is probably something new because it's really big. So even though when they did their phylogeny, their rough estimate based on the bones that they have is that it might be a relative of Bonitasora. And Bonitasora is only about 10 meters or a little over 30 feet long. This one looks more on the scale of Patagotitan. Nice. <laughs> which is the largest known titanosaur from a relatively complete skeleton.
1: They had to redo the room in the American Museum of Natural <laughs> History so that it would fit.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, they couldn't resist, right? Because... Mm-hmm. Even though that space was not ideal for it, it's like, we could p- display this. We got to find a place for it. It's so His awesome. It's
1: peeking out to give you a sense of just how large it is.
0: I think it actually makes it look bigger, having it in a room that it doesn't quite fit yes, effectively in. I think so, too. <laughs> like, if you put it in an aircraft carrier or something, or like how Dippy was at the British Museum mm-hmm. Natural History. There's
1: all this space around it. Yeah. You think, oh, yeah, that's pretty big.
0: And they were like, we should put a blue whale in here because the, there's too much space around Dippy. Nobody's gonna do that with Patagotitan. There's no more space. If there's a bigger sauropod found, it's too bad. There's no more well, they,
1: Maybe they'll put some smaller sauropods in there.
0: True. They might be able to sneak some ones underneath it or something. So they think that this one might be larger than Patagotitan. They're hmm. not sure if it is or not. We're missing the main bone that you would use to estimate that, which is basically the femur or the humerus, because those are the load bearing bones. So unfortunately, we can't do that. And usually when we're talking about largest, we want to know heaviest. It's sort of the, we say largest, but if something's long, like a snake technically makes it bigger in one way. Hmm. But
1: Oh, I like hearing about the lengths of sauropods.
0: Yeah. So I don't know how long this one was exactly. It's certainly very large. It had quite a neck on it, but we don't know the tail at all. We just have a couple of vertebrae here and there. So yeah, we didn't. we really don't know how long it was. But if it is like Patagotitan, it was probably roughly fifty tons. That's sort of the ballpark <laughs> of where Patagotitan. Think about how much
1: food you'd have to eat every day to keep that up.
0: It's crazy. It's a crazy animal. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't really know how to comprehend sauropods.
1: Yeah, especially because you know it's not just the one sauropod in the area.
0: Yeah. Yeah, like a herd of sauropods.
1: <laughs> just eating
0: everything. It's like an elephant with just like a cartoon long neck and tail behind it. Mm -hmm. And and, but like a bigger elephant, too, in the Mm -hmm. case of these. (laughs) So I don't know. It's crazy. They're constantly
1: eating. That might be another reason I like them so much. I can relate with the always wanting food.
0: Always being hungry. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm hungry right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So just to wrap up MOZPV1221, it's possible this will get named that if they do a little more research into the bones they might find something unique about it or we might find more bones at a quarry somewhere or something so this one might get a name as a new dinosaur at some point but for now it's just a really awesome individual of a titanosaur it's been referenced in the in different articles for a little while because it was first discovered in 2012 mm-hmm. sometimes people are like yeah there's also this unnamed huge titanosaur <laughs> in the <laughs> condaleros formation Oh, I love it. Yeah. So it's cool. I'm glad it's finally out there. hmm And I think it deserves as much interest as a dinosaur that gets a new fancy genus name.
1: What makes me think of Dreadnoughtus, the fear-nothing dinosaur. It's like, and this one's even bigger. Yeah. And even less to fear.
0: They did specifically compare this new titanosaur to Dreadnoughtus with like this Element of the scapula, a certain dimension of it, and said that it was like 10 to 20% bigger than Patagotitan and Rednotus. Wow! So that's why they're saying it could be the biggest ever. But like the scapula isn't the bone you use for that comparison. Right, it's kind of right. reaching, but it's the best they could do. With but the who I knows
1: found. how big dinosaurs, the biggest dinosaurs got? We don't know what the limits were.
0: It's very true. Because if we had guessed at what the limits were, we would have stopped short of sauropods. Oh sure. my gosh.
1: What if someday we found... A dinosaur that was as big as a blue whale.
0: As heavy as a blue whale, I think, is unlikely. Mm -hmm. But these sauropods were already longer than a blue whale. (laughs) Oh, true, true. That goes back to that, what's your definition of big?
1: Yeah, good point. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process.
0: Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As promised, up next I've got our cannibalistic tyrannosaurids. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This article was written by Sebastian Dahlman and Spencer Lucas, and it's published in the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science Bulletin 82. Cool. It's quite a name for a publication.
1: Well, the 82, yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, that's just the number of the...
1: Oh, like the issue number.
0: Yeah. Anyway, these cannibalistic Tyrannosaurids. We've talked before about cannibalism in Tyrannosauridae. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. I like think Majungasaurus.
0: Oh, that's not a Tyrannosaurid.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of just carnivorous dinosaurs You're and right. cannibalism.
0: Yeah, Majungasaurus was the very first well-known, I almost said Tyrannosaur, large theropod mm-hmm. for sure. Maybe even, I think it was just the first well-known cannibalistic dinosaur period. But it's expected in a lot of other theropods because apparently large carnivores exhibit cannibalism pretty frequently, Hmm. especially hyper carnivore things that just like, you know, their mouths are just a bunch of knives. So they're not eating, they're not omnivores, that's for sure. Yep, They're focused on the meat. Earlier we talked about a tyrannosaur foot bone from the Lance formation in Wyoming with signs of cannibalism. The thing I always think about in this one is there were these parallel scratches that was showing flesh scraped off the bone. Oh, my gosh. And it was a middle foot bone of a Tyrannosaur. It looked like...
1: Middle foot bone.
0: So all of the details of that, you can tell it's not fighting. Before that, I think all we had were like infighting things where it's like bite marks on the head, mm-hmm. but it looks like they might have healed or there's like a tooth from a different Tyrannosaur lodged into this Tyrannosaur or something to that effect. Right. but when you're eating meat off of the middle of a foot, that animal is not alive. Mm-hmm. That's just <laughs> not something you do That's while you're just fighting. just
1: an easy meal. <laughs>
0: yeah. And it's it's intense. That's not something you do lightly.
1: Well, I don't know what goes through or what went through the minds of Tyrannosaurs.
0: True. In that case, what might have gone through the mind of the tyrannosaurus it might have been a full-grown T-Rex eating what could have been a juvenile T-Rex because Mm. the Lance formation is late enough that Tyrannosaurus rex could have been around. We don't know specifically. We just know it's like a Tyrannosaur because the tooth, they have very unique teeth, those Tyrannosaurs. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty easy to tell. The one that had the foot that was getting eaten appears to be a juvenile or a Nanotyrannus if you're into that. Just a a small enough foot bone that it wasn't a full grown T-Rex. But the tooth pattern seems like it could have been an adult chewing on a juvenile potentially
1: do we think that because that's not a full meal for for a full-grown t-rex it's a snack do you think it was desperate to eat something
0: well it was i mean it was still a tyrannosaur so i think it could be a full meal i think if it ate a juvenile that was half its size or a quarter its size like it doesn't need to eat its entire body weight a day yeah so it could have been a snack we don't know though if it Killed it to eat it, or if it was scavenging, one of the things at the time was they were saying, "Well, it it seems like it could be scavenging because the middle foot bone is not where the juiciest meat is. Like mm-hmm. that's sort of the dregs. It's like chicken feet, right? There's like just not a lot of meat to go for there. Right. So it either ate other parts first, or it got there after all the other parts were eaten, or it was returning to a kill and finishing up the last bits of it or something.
1: Didn't want it to go to waste.
0: Yeah. There's not a lot of waste that happens out in the the natural world, that's for sure. So that was kind of where we were before this paper. Now, this new paper adds three new examples from different sites in the San Juan Basin in northwest New Mexico. So I'm just going to go through them one at a time. They're all super interesting. The first one is a jawbone from the Nananazad member of the Fruitland Formation, and that's from the Campanian, which is about 75 and a half million years ago, pretty specific, But at 75 and a half million years ago, that was probably too early to be a T-Rex.
1: But so it's some kind of Tyrannosaur.
0: Yes. This one is probably the easiest to tell that it's a Tyrannosaur because it's the jawbone. Mm -hmm. And Tyrannosaurs had those really deep jaws. They're very obvious to be Tyrannosaur jaws. It's like one of the most characteristic areas of the animal. So yes, it was definitely a Tyrannosaur, but almost certainly not a T-Rex because it was too early. They do say, "quote The specimen is being described by us in detail in another paper as belonging to a new genus and a new species." End quote. So they don't think it was a T. Rex. They think it's unique enough, especially like I was saying, that dentary can give you a lot of information. So I guess they're naming a new species. They haven't done it yet, but eventually they will. And for the record, in case you're trying to align these things later, this bone is KUVP nine six eight eight eight. So if we ever describe a bone <laughs> with that number, we'll know that that is the same individual, even if they don't mention the the chew marks on it.
1: Right. Well, if we read the paper where they describe it.
0: Yes. I don't know what I said, but I must have said something. Wrong. Oh,
1: you said if we describe it. Say, so, oh, no, no, we're not the ones <laughs> describing.
0: <laughs> That's true. Yes, <laughs> we are not. We don't describe anything. We report on descriptions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this KUVP 96888 is about 36 and a half centimeters or 14 inches long and about 14 centimeters or five and a half inches deep. And that's just a partial half of a jaw. Oh my goodness. So I was thinking about it. I mean, T-Rex heads can be like four feet long, right? And the jaws are most of that length. Mm -hmm. So this is not really a full grown T-Rex scale, but it may have been full grown for whatever was around 75 million years ago, you know, five to seven million years before T-Rex. They gave an estimate on its body length and they said that it was over 10 meters, which would make it over 30 feet. And they do think that it was probably an adult. Not sure why, I'm sure that'll be in the next paper. Mm -hmm. But the important thing about it for this paper is the bite marks on it. So it has a bunch of parallel bite marks around the jaw. One of them is three inches long and it starts out relatively narrow across just three millimeters about, but then it widens as it moves to the edge of the jaw, the jaw bone, Mm -hmm. and it reaches five centimeters or two inches wide and quite deep at the edge. So (laughs) Tyrannosaurs were the only things we know that had wide and beefy enough teeth to carve out that much bone out of a jaw. So that's why we're pretty confident that this one was bit by another tyrannosaur. And we can tell by the jaw shape that it was a tyrannosaur. And that's why we think it's evidence of cannibalism. But interestingly, there were lots of other marks on the jaw, including about a one inch diameter puncture that goes all the way through the bone of the jaw. Oh my gosh. Ouch. (laughs) And they described that one as a combination of drag and puncture. So basically it starts with a scrape mark, although I shouldn't say scrape because a scrape can be a different thing where you're kind of using the side of the tooth, but it's like dragging the tip, like the point of the tooth along and then puncturing into like a full blown hole all the way through the jawbone.
1: Oh, that's so painful sounding.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The craziest thing on this one, unlike that foot bone where we're like, this animal was dead because it's the middle of the foot. The bite marks were partially healed, Mm -hmm. which means an a T-Rex, or not a T-Rex, some unnamed Tyrannosaur, bit another Tyrannosaur on the face hard enough for its tooth to go through the other Tyrannosaur's jawbone. Oh my gosh. Not just like the the meat on the jaw, the mm-hmm. actual bone. Oh,
1: that had to have hurt a lot.
0: Yeah. It penetrated all the way through it, and the animal survived for a while, uh, long enough for it to start healing.
1: But also, how did that other Tyrannosaur get its tooth out?
0: I don't know. Maybe it didn't. They had replaceable teeth, so maybe it got stuck. It
1: broke off a tooth and then eventually fell.
0: It's possible. Crazy. I have no idea. It's crazy. Yes. But in this case, I would say this is not an example of cannibalism, just very, very aggressive fighting potentially. Or was it
1: attempted cannibalism? It could
0: be. Yes. It might also be evidence that they were living in groups because the authors refer to other single species bone beds of large theropods, and we know like Majungasaurus, maybe living in a group and other animals. So maybe they were living in a group and then there was some infighting going on that got so aggressive that they're biting through each other's head bones. Wow. So that happened. (laughs) (laughs) The next one is a complete femur, which was recovered from the Denazin member of the Kirtland formation, which is also from the Campanian, but about a million and a half years more recent. So this one's only about 74 million years ago. Still too old to be a T-Rex. Its specimen number is P 25083 And it is just that femur. It's 81 centimeters or two foot eight inches long, which sounds big, certainly bigger than our femur. But <laughs> <laughs> it's only about- Most
1: dinosaurs are, have bigger femurs.
0: That's true, yes. But- This femur is only about 60% the size of Sioux, so it is far from full grown in most likelihood. But again, it could be a smaller species, in which case it might not be, and it maybe could be an adult, I guess. They estimate its length at about 7 meters or 23 feet, so significantly smaller than the previous individual, and they do think that it wasn't fully grown. But I don't think they did any histology. It would kind of be a shame to cut into a bone like this because the thing is just covered in bite marks <laughs> all over the place. And you wouldn't want to. probably
1: want to study all those pathologies.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. So I'll start with the biggest one. There's a huge bite mark on the knob at the top of the femur, Ooh. which is like the knob and socket or ball and socket where it fits into the hip socket. Mm-hmm. The bite mark is about an inch wide and a few inches long. It goes all the way across the ball. It's just this huge gouge through mm. the bone. And then there are just smaller bite marks peppered all over the rest of the femur. They're like down the side. There's like eight parallel marks at one point down near the lesser trochanter. And then on the bottom, there's a bunch of marks too.
1: Did it say if it was looked like it was healed or healing?
0: <laughs> well, so in this case, in order to get their tooth on the ball part of the femur, mm-hmm. Basically, the femur is no longer attached to the hip at that oh, point. Oh, okay. So this is a potentially a leg removal technique oh my gosh. where it was eating the leg of another tyrannosaur because again, these teeth mark match tyrannosaur teeth. So it looks like a tyrannosaur chewing on another tyrannosaur. Mm-hmm. And they said that it's possible that it was trying to cut the leg free so that it could eat the leg easier obviously you know if you're trying to get around to the underside of it or chew on it in different ways then it would be useful to do that and maybe that's why there's this huge scrape mark there maybe it was using its teeth like knives Mm -hmm. to cut it free and then get it off and then afterwards if that was what happened it just chewed all over the place i'm imagining it like a dog just chewing on a bone like that's basically what it was doing just gnawing all over the place there are all sorts of different short drag marks and puncture marks and lots of stuff all over the bone. And there was no healing anywhere. So yes, to answer your question, it did not survive. This is either scavenging or a recent kill that was being eaten, Hmm. not a living animal that was getting chewed on.
1: Hopefully it died more peacefully.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully before it got its leg bit enough. It's also possible though, that it didn't specifically try to bite off the leg in order to get at it. Maybe it was just trying to get at cartilage if, if it was already removed or mm-hmm. it was just trying to chew on it in place because some, you know, you like cartilage. So yeah. I think you could probably relate to that desire. Maybe not on a raw animal laying out in the dirt. Well, but,
1: I'm no Tyrannosaur. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> it's hard to beat their hunger, I suppose. <laughs> so yeah, that's the that's the second example that we have all right and then the last example is a tail vertebra from the ojo alamo formation and this one's actually the Maastrichtian, which is 68 million years ago in this case and that actually is at an age where it could potentially be a t-rex and just because i've given all the other specimen numbers this one's nmnh p40953 and to be specific it's not just any tail vertebra. It's a proximal caudal, which means it's near the base of the tail, but maybe not the most near the base of the tail because it didn't have the right sort of pneumaticity and Mm. stuff that they normally see like at those very first ones.
1: What happened to the base of this tail?
0: (laughs) So this one is, I'll just put your mind at ease. There's no healing around the bone, which might be a good thing because Mm. it means the animal wasn't feeling the chewing happening on the tail.
1: Or died shortly after.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. I guess it could have been alive for it and then just didn't survive long enough. But let's not, let's think happy thoughts and assume that it it died a happy- Circle of
1: life. It was feeding, it was helping another animal to live. After it died of some natural causes somehow and lived a happy life, however long that may have been.
0: It is very much possible that that happened. We have no reason to, well, actually the authors do think there's a reason that that didn't happen, Mm. but for now, let's go with that. (laughs) So this proximal caudal was about 10 centimeters long and about nine centimeters tall, so it's a little bit deeper than it is in diameter, but that's about four inches each. It's roughly the same. They estimate that the full individual was about five meters or 15 feet long. So we're getting smaller and smaller Mm -hmm. as we go through these bones. Just
1: Uh, goes to show it doesn't matter what size you are, the cannibalism could happen.
0: Well, I mean, the smallest one is the one that is definitely getting eaten, whereas the biggest one survived.
1: Oh, I see. At least
0: for a little while. So being bigger does help with Mm -hmm. not getting cannibalized.
1: But it doesn't mean there's not attempts. (laughs)
0: True. Yeah, something was going on. It definitely wasn't invulnerable even at 30 feet long. So this 15 foot long individual, the authors think is small enough that it was probably a juvenile. And again, it could have even been a T-Rex because it's in the right age, but it's only the centrum of a vertebra. So like there's not a lot of information there to go on. Like Mm -hmm. there's no way this is ever getting identified with a specific species unless they find other bones from that quarry. It's just not enough detail there. But There is a lot of detail in the bite marks. So again, bite marks all over the place, but the largest one is an oval on the side of the vertebra, which is about 5.7 centimeters by 3.3 centimeters or just over two by one inches. (laughs) But remember the whole vertebra is only 10 centimeters long and this oval is almost six centimeters long. So it's taking up most of the length of the vertebra and a decent amount of the height. It's like a lot of the side is bite mark.
1: All of these paint a good picture of just how strong tyrannosaur bite forces were.
0: Yeah, I would say this one more than any of the others too because that area of that two by one inch in like an oval isn't like a scratch mark. It's not like a regular bite mark. It's actually the first known case in a tyrannosaurid bite of what's called a puncture and collapse bite. So what happened here is rather than just poking a hole basically a large piece of the bone caved in. Hmm. So rather than like there being a bunch of fracturing and stuff, it literally just kind of like mushed in. And usually there aren't even that many fractures. It's just like a collapsed area of bone. So I imagine it kind of like if you're trying to stab through a cardboard poster tube with a knife, I'm imagining, Mm -hmm. and like you might get a little hole in the tube to start out with, but if you pushed really hard and you're just trying to stab through it, you're probably just gonna collapse the cardboard. Hmm. You, you know, it's not gonna cut through cleanly unless maybe if the knife is really sharp, it could, but this is like the best analogy I can come up with. Where And
1: now think of that cardboard as being bone. <laughs>
0: yeah, now, now you're a T-Rex with like multiple tons of bite force. Yeah, so that's what happened here. And that, that large area I'm describing, that oval is the collapse area that's about eight millimeters or about a third of an inch deep. And then there's a small puncture mark in the middle of the depression, which is presumably the tip of the tooth or in my weird analogy, like the the knife blade in the cardboard tube before the whole thing caved in. Pretty intense. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of the bone, there's sort of like a matching part of the other jaw. So it's like, if you imagine the T-Rex biting it, And where the lower jaw would hit, if the upper jaw is on the side that collapsed, it matches up like it had this bone in its mouth and it was like crushing it basically. So yeah, there's some deep gouges on the bottom of the vertebra too. The authors also think that the neural arch might be missing because the tyrannosaur might have just bit it off and just kind of swallowed it or crushed it up a little bit more and swallowed that whole neural arch because there would have been a lot of meat Around it, there's a lot of muscles that run along the top and the bottom of the tail, although there's potentially more meat on the bottom of the tail. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this tyrannosaur was eating the top of the tail might mean that it got there later.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: But it could also mean that it just already ate the bottom of the tail, and now it's eating the top of the tail. Like, right. there's you just don't really know from that little bit of detail.
1: Dinosaurs had rough lives.
0: They did, yes. But in this case, again... It was it was dead. There's no way to chew on a centrum of a vertebrae at the base of a tail with while it's alive. Like I just there's going to be way too much bleeding if you bit something there. It managed to you know cave in its bone. So <laughs> to to summarize, tyrannosaurids are the only thing we know. In this ecosystem, the northwest part of New Mexico, the San Juan Basin, over those millions of years, that had huge serrated teeth that match. They also match the spacing between the teeth in the cases where we can see multiple teeth in a row with the bite marks. And therefore, it could be cannibalism.
1: Or could it be different tyrannosaurids?
0: Exactly. So that's exactly where I went with it. Because yes, it's tyrannosaurids eating tyrannosaurids, Mm -hmm. but like... We don't know it's the exact same species. There are parts in the paper where they refer to it as monospecific, meaning it's the exact same species eating another of its same species. But there are other parts where they talk about it's Tyrannosaurid cannibalism, as in like Tyrannosaurids eating other Tyrannosaurids. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think you're 100% right that we don't know that this is definitely the same species. It could have been a different species. Like they could have been living in totally different groups, had different behaviors, and then- on the occasion when something was available to eat, they were eating each other, yeah. but it didn't necessarily have to be the exact same species. I think that's a I really I wonder
1: too, if it was sometimes accidental, like they get in a fight over something, territory or something like that, and it ends in one dying and then it's like, oh, well, now I have a meal.
0: They do. That's been talked about with, I think, Komodo dragons with like the quote unquote feeding frenzy, mm-hmm. like they're sort of group hunting. And then occasionally like one of the members of their hunting party get sort of wrapped up in it and they end up eating that one too mm-hmm. so yeah i think that is definitely a possibility especially when we're talking about like the one that got bit on the face mm-hmm. and survived like that's not cannibalism but it is close it's cannibalism adjacent <laughs> when you're biting another animal that hard so yeah the way the authors put it was quote san juan basin tyrannosaurids attacked and fed upon the remains of not only their most common prey, such as ceratopsians, hadrosaurs, and sauropods, but also conspecifics, end quote.
1: I think it mostly tells us that they were often fighting.
0: Yes. And I think it also is a good example that these tyrannosaurids weren't just scavengers, because there are tyrannosaurs that survived bites from tyrannosaurs. But then we also know of you know, ceratopsians and hadrosaurs and things that have healed bite marks from tyrannosaurs. So yeah, they were they were an aggressive group mm-hmm. of animals. And I'm glad they're not around now because I don't want to deal with them. <laughs> <laughs> they
1: they developed those jaws for a reason, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. If it could bite through another tyrannosaur's jaw, it I don't want to think about what would happen to me if I was one bite I was hungry. Yeah. Would it even bite? Or would it, or it would just like swallow? I guess it would bite.
1: It would bite, then swallow. Yeah. But it would, you would be a quick meal, a quick appetizer.
0: Yeah. Like a squishy, easy meal compared to the things it has to go after. What's
1: that word? Maybe you're in a, a muse bush.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like a little thing and you're like, why am I even eating this? It's right. so small. Right.
1: Or, right. like, you know, just get your appetite ready or, yeah.
0: Very true. Also, Just one last little side note, the end of the paper has a long list of other cannibalistic animals, which I just kind of enjoyed. It includes like large carnivores and their examples are bears, hyenas, big cats, Komodo dragons, and crocodilians.
1: Ooh, something that big cats have in common with other animals, even though they're weird.
0: (laughs) That's true. Yes. And I didn't realize bears were ever carnivorous, but that's interesting to me. And then they also included several modern dinosaurs red-tailed hawks, great gray owls, and crows. Crows? What? Yeah, I don't know when that happens because I thought they had funerals and stuff, but maybe if it's not a member of their own group and they find something During
1: famine times, I don't know.
0: Yeah, but we saw that study where it was like crows don't eat around the area where they find another dead crow. I don't know, but apparently it's been seen. So Hmm. I guess if the situation is right and they need a meal and there's a crow around, cannibalism time, so... If it happens in modern dinosaurs, it happens in modern crocodilians. Mm -hmm. Those are the only living descendants of archosaurs. Probably happened in dinosaurs a fair amount of the time.
1: And then some mammals, like the bears. Yes. Bear necessities indeed. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What, I can't make a dad joke? (laughs) You can. In other news, actually other T-Rex news, there is an eighth grader, Jonathan Charpentier, who found a T-Rex tooth in Colorado while he was hiking in Boulder County, and he gave the tooth to Joe Sertich, the dinosaur curator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and the museum's going to send people to the area where he found the tooth to look for more fossils, and it could lead to more research.
0: Nice. But sometimes teeth just pop out of those T-Rex mouths, so... Yeah. You never know.
1: Just another story of somebody was hiking and came upon an excellent dinosaur find. I hope that happens to me one day.
0: Yeah, we're going to have to hike not in California. True.
1: <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. So in other news, I've got an update about the National Museum of Brazil, which, you know, in 2018, there was the big fire and a lot of things were lost in the fire. But... They've been working on restoring and recovering as much as they can. And they found a vertebrate of a large dinosaur from about 80 million years ago. It's likely a titanosaur. And it might be possible for them to describe it by next year. And it's known as the Dinosaur of Mato Grosso. It was first found between 2003 and 2006 there. And in, when they found it, it involved removing two tons of material on a gravel road in pouring rain.
0: So this was one of those where they like, had excavated it, brought it back to the museum, and then it was sitting there waiting to be described?
1: I don't know if it was waiting to be described, but it was apparently on the ground floor and then crushed by two floors of the Bicentennial Palace in Rio de Janeiro Mm. after the fire. So the fire happened, caused it to collapse, and then the skeleton was under the collapsed building.
0: Wow. So I guess they've removed that building now and they can get to the fossils that are underneath.
1: Yeah, they've gone through most of the rooms. There's a team of 30 people now that have something like only three rooms left to search. And once they're done searching, then they'll work on restoration. But so the bones of this titanosaur were pretty much intact. Nice. Which was pretty cool. Yeah. So that team of 30 people, uh, it used to be bigger, but then I guess they need fewer people because there's only three rooms left. But they've found items from 14 of the 25 collections Hmm. and they're estimating a full reconstruction of the museum for 2025, but they do still need funding. They only have something like 65% of the funding they need.
0: Gotcha. That's progress. It is. I'm kind of disappointed. They only have items from 14 of the 25 collections though, because that's like, that's not the entire collection either. It sounds like they really did lose a lot of good stuff.
1: Yeah, Definitely. But they still have a few rooms to search. And then I don't know if they've done a full catalog yet. They're kind of, they're waiting until they're done searching before they catalog and then start restoring and work from there. And going back to the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science in Albuquerque, they've got the exhibit Tiny Titans, Dinosaur Eggs and Babies. Do you remember that one? We saw it in, I think, Canada.
0: Yeah, I think we saw it at the Phil Curry Museum.
1: That sounds right. It's a traveling exhibit, so it's been to a number of museums. And you learn about dinosaur eggs. You see baby dinosaurs and dinosaurs in eggs.
0: That might have been the one where you put on the Giganto Raptor costume. I think so. <laughs> and like pretended, pretended to... Pretended
1: to nest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With the wings.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to need to post that picture on our Discord. <laughs>
1: to find it somewhere in our <laughs> archives. It's a good one. So the website says the exhibit's been extended, but I didn't see any dates for how long it'll be there. But the museum made a virtual tour of the exhibit. If you can't make it to New Mexico, you can go on this virtual tour.
0: I can't, so I guess I will.
1: Yeah, you can compare, see if it's how you remember it. You look through, you can see what it looks like in the museum, and then you read information about the art. And then there's interviews with the artists and some video content. That's pretty cool. In Montana, the Two Medicine Dinosaur Center is going through some changes. So the biggest one is it's now called the Montana Dinosaur Center.
0: Yeah, when you first told me this, I was like, that's too bad. I like like Two Medicine because it's such an important formation and everything. But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized, well, if you have medicine in the name of a museum, People are going to get completely the wrong impression. They might
1: not think of dinosaurs or paleontology.
0: No one, no passerby realize it. Like their sign is good now because it's like Dinosaur Museum. It's got like pictures of dinosaurs and stuff on it. But the title really doesn't, to the public, evoke the sort of dinosaur sensibility that you're trying to get to. Well, it
1: also gives people the name Montana Dinosaur Center a better sense of where they are. Because to medicine, you don't necessarily know that's in Montana.
0: That's true, yeah.
1: And... They don't just dig at the Two Medicine Formation. They also dig at Hell Creek and Judith River. So mm. it's more encompassing.
0: But they are located at the Two Medicine Formation.
1: Yeah, but they do work in a bunch of areas. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, yeah. that makes sense.
1: And they also have an all-female executive committee for the Montana Dinosaur Center. Which oh, it's also new for them. Yeah. And this committee is working on a six to eight month plan to grow the museum and have it reach more people. And one of their goals, and I think this has been their goal for a while because I remember them telling us before, yeah, to be a bureau of Land management repository, which would allow them to dig on state lands.
0: I think they might dig on them now, but they're not allowed to actually keep the fossils at the museum. They have right. to hand the them over storm to store them elsewhere, and I think there's only two I think places
1: it goes to. Museum of the Rockies, That's, usually.
0: That used to be the only one, I think, but maybe Ecolaca is the other one. There's like one or two others in Montana mm. now, but yeah, it's a, it's a small handful. Out of all the dinosaur museums in Montana, not very many of them are allowed to store stuff from state lands. So.
1: Yeah, so they're working on it. They do need to update their facilities still to meet the requirements, but yeah. they're working on it, which is cool. And if you're looking for something to do this summer, you can book digs with them now, too. They have digs from May until September. Nice. And that's where we went on our dig.
0: Yeah, we'd, we'd, we did like an afternoon dig. Actually, it was a full day. Mm-hmm. There was an option to do a half day. And we were like, no, we're going to really get into it. We're going to do one full day. Yep. <laughs> Whereas a lot of people do, like a week is a more normal amount. But. Well,
1: yeah, but we were trying to get to many museums in a short amount of time. This
0: is true. We only had a week for our whole road trip. Yeah, so, yeah.
1: Sure, most of our listeners would be better at it than me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> better than me, you're better than you. Better than me. <laughs> So in other exhibit news, in Illinois, Brookfield Zoo has its Dinosaurs Everywhere exhibit, which we've actually talked about before, but I'm bringing it up again because it's back and it's going to be around until September 6th. And as a quick reminder, it's 40 animatronic dinosaurs in a 216 acre park.
0: Oh, it's a big one.
1: Big one. Yeah. So they have like Argentinosaurus as one of them. Yeah.
0: Because when you have that many acres, why not throw a-
1: A giant one.
0: Enormous dinosaur in the mix. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And what's new this time is they've added 12 mini brontosaurus named Benita along their dinosaur trail.
0: All 12 of them have the same name?
1: That's how it sounded in the article.
0: <laughs> That's weird.
1: Maybe it's like how we've seen competitions where you have a statue of, I think we've seen it with Triceratops, but also non-dinosaurs, like a cow or something. And you have like 40 cows around a town and every each artist paints it differently. Maybe that's what they did with Benita. It's all Benita, but looking different. Mm, could I- be. I couldn't find too many details. Yeah. In Massachusetts, Six Flags New England has an exhibit called Dinosaurs, a Walkthrough Experience. That's going on from now until May 23rd. And it's this self-paced, they say virtual educational tool. It's virtual in that you, you scan QR codes to learn more about the dinosaurs that you see while you're uh, walking.
0: That's confusing. Because there are a lot of virtual tours that mean you're not actually there. (laughs) Totally virtual, yeah.
1: So they've got 20 animatronic dinosaurs, and in the pictures I saw Dilophosaurus and Stegosaurus. And they've also got dinosaur-themed activities and puppets. No rides are operating yet in the theme park, so it seems like it's all about the dinosaurs at least until May 23rd.
0: They've pivoted from roller coasters to dinosaur animatronics, and it's interesting.
1: Maybe it's easier to social distance.
0: Probably, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to stay six feet away when you're on a roller coaster.
1: hmm But it's cool that they're using dinosaurs. And speaking of dinosaurs in the outdoors, if you're in Maine, Arundel Raptor Falls Mini Golf and Ice Cream is reopening May 1st. <laughs> I really the like mini that combination. Golf and Ice
0: Cream. Yeah.
1: So it's a mini golf course full of animatronic dinosaurs and... Based on the pictures, they've got at least one sauropod and then a raptor hatching out of an egg and a T-Rex. Like It's all dinosaurs. So many dinosaurs. Nice. And then in Citrus Ridge, Florida, you can vacation at something called the raptor retreat, which is you book a house and it's completely dinosaur themed.
0: Interesting. (laughs) And
1: they have themed areas in the house. So like one area is the museum theme and there's signs and art and there's a hatched egg on one of the tables one of the beds sits inside the mouth of a T-Rex skull obviously the beds are custom made there's a carnivorous dinosaur i think a T-Rex sculpture that you know looks like it's coming out of the wall and then the bottom half the downstairs is bones and then it the top half upstairs it shows the flesh and the skin
0: oh weird
1: yeah <laughs> And the bedrooms have different themes, so one is dinosaur nests, and the bed's coming out of a hatching egg, another's a stegosaurus room, and then there's even an extinction room, which I don't think I'd want to sleep in, but it's got fog above the bed <laughs> and the rooms have sound effects. It sounds like a pretty intense theme,
0: yeah, that sounds more like a theme park situation, like a ride or something than a place you'd
1: vacation live. In and stay and sleep,
0: yeah. I'm not into it. I would not want to stay there. I don't think it's too much.
1: I wouldn't mind touring it. Yeah. Maybe for one night. I don't know.
0: Maybe. Yeah. Sometimes when I hear about these things like, oh, this dinosaur thing in a house, I'm like, I want that. I want to do that in my house. Not Not this one. No.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of other dinosaur things you want to do. Yeah. And then last in the news, if you're fans of The Flash, the comic, as well as dinosaurs, In the latest issue, this is a potential spoiler, so if you're reading it, maybe skip this. But in the latest issue, they've got Wally West being hunted by a speedster dinosaur.
0: Speedster is like the things that move all fast, like the Flash?
1: Yeah, exactly. So Wally, I guess, wants to get rid of his speed, and while that's happening, there's this anomaly in the speed force that sends him back in time. But his connection to the speed force isn't that reliable. So he accidentally, quote unquote, infects a velociraptor and that makes that raptor a speedster. And there's one of the images that shows the velociraptor chasing Wally, and they're probably running really fast because there's lightning all around them.
0: There's blur lines. Yeah. That's interesting.
1: Why I was thinking, and I don't know <laughs> how much they go into this, but think of all the dinosaurs that that raptor could successfully hunt with its super speed.
0: It, it's everything. Yeah. If you can go that fast, like, I mean, even the Flash, it's the same things he could hunt mm-hmm. if he had a knife, basically. But, man, these, these premises for the Flash are really out there.
1: Oh, I like when they <laughs> cross over with prehistoric times and then think about what could happen.
0: Yeah, that is crazy.
1: And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Turiosaurus, which was a request from Real McCoy's 19 via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. It was a sauropod that lived in the late Jurassic, early Cretaceous in what is now Teruel province in Spain. And it's a sauropod, so it had a long neck and tail, and it looks kind of stocky in the paleo art depictions. Originally, it was estimated to be 118 to 128 feet, 36 to 39 meters long, and weighed 40 to 48 tons. Oof. And the articles at the time that it was announced that it was about the weight of six to seven adult male elephants.
0: Yeah, that's a big boy.
1: But then later estimates said it was 98 feet or 30 meters long and weighed 50 tons.
0: So it got heavier but shorter. Yeah. I mean, the, the length thing is very common. We talk about that, how a lot of the sauropods shrink over time in estimates. But that's still really big. Yeah.
1: So it's probably the largest dinosaur found in Europe. And it was one of the largest dinosaurs known at the time of its discovery. But, you know, now we know about Patagotitan and then this unnamed titanosaur.
0: Yeah. Among some others that I think are bigger.
1: Mm-hmm. But the humerus was described as being as large as an adult human. And the claw on the first digit of its foot has been compared to the size of an American football. Oh,
0: man. Yeah. It's yeah, pretty big. Don't count the sauropod claws out, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> the skull, though, was 37 and a half inches or 70 centimeters long, which was pretty small proportionally to its body.
0: About three feet. Yeah. That's still a decent sized head, at least for a sauropod.
1: Yeah. But it still wasn't that big. It's possible that if it had a bigger head, that would have broken its neck.
0: Yeah. So they needed small brains. It had to have a small brain. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. It was a survival thing.
1: <laughs> so the skull was a short, high skull, kind of like Camarasaurus. And then obviously it's a sauropod, it's herbivorous, it had heterodont teeth, and these teeth had long roots and the crowns were heart-shaped. The type and only species is Turiosaurus rhodivensis, and it was described in 2006 by Rafael Royo Torres and others. And this genus name means Turia lizard because Tur is the Latinized form of Terrell, the province where it was found. And it used to informally be known as Rio Devasaurus after Riodava, Spain, which is the village near where the dinosaur was found.
0: It's the tricky thing with those informal names. Yeah. Sometimes it change and then it gets confused.
1: Well, it made it into the species name. True. So the fossils were found in 2003. They found parts of the skull, scapula, femur, tibia, fibula, teeth, vertebrae, ribs, and phalanges.
0: That's pretty good. hmm Especially the skull. You don't find those every day, especially with sauropods.
1: Yeah. And they also found with these fossils, theropod teeth, stegosaur fossils, fish, and turtles.
0: When there's a dead sauropod, there's theropod teeth.
1: Yes. I thought you were going to say turtles. Oh, anyway, yeah.
0: And dead turtles.
1: Not always. So, <laughs> <laughs> formed a new clade pteriosauria, which are these basal sauropods with the heart-shaped teeth with grooves in the roots that lived in the middle Jurassic to early Cretaceous in what's now Europe, North America, and Africa. And this new clade is distinct from neosauropoda, which includes the well-known giant sauropods like Apatosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Diplodocus, Argentinosaurus, and Patagotitan. But Turiosaurus had more primitive features than other large sauropods, so it helps to show that multiple lineages of sauropods evolved independently to grow so large. In 2009, Octavio Mateus described a tooth and a nearly complete right forelimb that he'd found in 1996 in Portugal and tentatively referred to it as Turiosaurus. It had been excavated in 1996, 2000, and 2002. Then he described it in 2009. And then in 2014, Mateus and others reassigned those fossils and named it a new dinosaur, Zebe atlanticus. And it was found to be closely related to Turiosaurus because it even had the somewhat heart-shaped tooth crowns, but it wasn't quite as heart-shaped. But there were enough differences, especially with the forelimb. In 2012, Rafael Royo Torres and Paul Upchurch described the skull of Turiosaurus, and they found... The muscular anatomy to be similar to other sauropods but it did have smaller insertions and attachments compared to more derived sauropods which might mean it had weaker feeding dynamics
0: in other words weaker bite
1: yep and then in 2021 this year rafael Royo torres and others published a paper on a new rosetta (laughs) turiosaur specimen from spain and we talked about that in depth in episode 324 of our podcast And our fun fact for this episode, because I did the fun fact this week. Indeed. There was a study by Monica Carvalho and others, and thank you to all the listeners who sent us links. It was published in Science. It's called Extinction at the End Cretaceous and the Origin of Modern Neotropical Rainforests," And the authors found that the asteroid impact that killed the non-avian dinosaurs also led to the birth of modern rainforests.
0: That's super weird.
1: Yeah. So what they did is they studied over 50,000 fossil pollen and 6,000 fossil leaves from 53 sites in Colombia from before and after the impact, so during the late Cretaceous, and then up to like 10 million years after the impact event. And they found that before the impact, there were a lot of conifers and ferns. But after the impact, plant diversity declined by 45% and then didn't recover for about 6 million years. And after the impact, there were fires that probably burned for a few years.
0: Oh, yeah. And even if the fire wasn't burning, there wasn't as much sunlight. So we think that a lot of plants weren't able to grow. And it was really cold. Yes. It's a big reset button on the area for sure.
1: Oh, yeah. Lots of extinctions. I mean, the non-avian dinosaurs were obviously went extinct. But also what went extinct were seed-bearing plants. A lot of seed-bearing plants. Interesting. So then this paved the way over the next 6 million years for a new type of plant, the angiosperms, the flowering plants. So these types of plants grew into forests that had a thick canopy because before the impact, the trees that grew had more space between them and they didn't overlap at the top. So the forest looked very different before and after the impact.
0: Oh, that's really interesting because I always imagine dinosaurs under a canopy when they're in a forest. Mm -hmm. And we've even seen depictions of that, like some of the early claymation, like the Phil Tippett thing. Yeah, It was dinosaurs walking in like a canopy type forest. And we talked before about like, how did sauropods live in like this dense area? Like how could they maneuver around and stuff? But it sounds like maybe they didn't have to because it was a different kind of forest.
1: Well, so there's a few ideas on why this happened. And it could be one of these ideas or maybe a mix of these ideas. Maybe none of them, but, you know. Anyway, these are interesting theories. So the first one is that the dinosaurs themselves may have kept the trees more widely spaced because they were eating and then trampling on the plants at the lower levels.
0: Oh, yeah. Or like knocking over trees if there were too many of them in the way.
1: Yeah, just like (laughs) Earl Sinclair. Yep. (laughs) Another idea is there was a lot of falling ash, which enriched the soil, and then that made it better for these fast-growing flowering plants, and then these plants competed for light and made dense canopies as they're competing for the light.
0: Yeah, but there were fires before, so that seems like a little bit of a stretch.
1: It could be that it contributed, though. Mm. And the third idea is that Flowering plants had an opportunity to take over once the conifers and ferns were gone, which is really similar to how mammals thrived after dinosaurs.
0: Yes, for sure. That's what I was thinking like that. The scorched earth of all the fires and then no sunlight and all those issues and the cold temperatures and stuff. It's a big reset button. And then it just so happened that angiosperms were the ones that managed to take advantage of it. Mm -hmm.
1: They're just perfectly placed at the time.
0: Yep. Yep. Lucky. It's all about luck when it comes to mass extinctions.
1: Yeah. So summing up, this asteroid impact, which was sudden and obviously disturbed everything, shows that after these kinds of disturbances, ecosystems don't bounce back and it's not going to look the same. Instead, new things pop up and this takes a really long time. So you can't just replace things and make it the same. It's always going to look different.
0: Yeah. So for those really rare Elvis taxa, Mm-hmm. But those aren't mass extinctions. That's like a very microcosm extinction. And then something can fill in from another area. Yeah. Cool. Is
1: that dinosaur enough for you?
0: It is. That was a very good fun fact. Good job.
1: <laughs> Thanks. And that wraps up this episode of Ino Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our community of dinosaur enthusiasts, patreon.com/slash InoDino. Thanks again. And until next time.